Everyone who's lived through the COVID-19 pandemic will carry memories of it and be affected by them, probably for a lifetime. But will the pandemic be memorialised in public ways like other huge life-changing historical events have? With over 600 million confirmed cases and more than 6.5 million deaths to date, in terms of sheer scale, COVID-19 certainly merits places of community remembrance. But is there something about a pandemic that makes it less likely to be formally commemorated in public spaces? Mark Honigsbaum is a medical historian, journalist and the author of The Pandemic Century, 100 Years of Panic, Hysteria and Hubris. Mark wrote an essay titled Why We Don't Remember Pandemics for the website engelsbergideas.com and I'm very pleased to say he joins us on Sunday Extra now. Welcome, Mark. Thank you for having me, Julian. It's a pleasure. Mark, you've looked into the way that previous pandemics have been memorialised, if at all. What did you find there? Well, um, what, what I found really was that despite the impact that some of these pandemics have had and um, the fact that, you know, they've been written about by historians and in some cases led to all sorts of art productions, uh, generally speaking, pandemics, at least in the modern era, haven't been very well memorialised. Um, of course, if you go back to the early modern period and, and the Black Death, Everyone knows about the Black Death. You know, you learn about it at school. It features in films and other productions. But that's not so true of more recent pandemics. Why do you think it is that these more recent pandemics don't get remembered, uh, whether it's by way of monuments or cultural output or anything like that, compared to other sort of world-changing events? Well, I think the best example of that is to look at World War One. So um, what's interesting about World War One is, of course, it coincided with one of the biggest pandemics of the last hundred years, mm. at least until COVID-19, and that was the Spanish flu, the 1918 to 1919 Spanish influenza. But, you know, the Spanish influenza, there are hardly any contemporary memorials to that event anywhere in the world, whereas... You only have to walk down any to any city or, or, or town in Britain or, or in northern France and you'll come across endless pillars and columns memorialising the dead of World War I. And I think that's because uh, wars mobilise the whole of society and, you know, they, they invoke a common enemy. Um, it's very hard, I think, to see any kind of... Uh, agency in a virus, an invisible virus that is a kind of seen as a natural phenomenon. Of course, it is a natural phenomenon, although uh, we do all sorts of things that can make these events more likely. But it's kind of an invisible enemy. So it's, it's hard to attach agency to it. Uh, and therefore, it, it's hard afterwards to find any kind of really rhyme or reason or, or moral narrative in uh, a virus that seems to kill people almost indiscriminately. In Australia at the moment, the rhetoric is very much about learning to live with COVID in the time when we're certainly post-pandemic restrictions, even though the virus is, you know, sort of uh, spreading uh, more virulently than it had at any point during the lockdowns. Do you think there's a, a political dimension to the tendency not to commemorate pandemics as much as other events? Well, I, I think this is this is a massive issue, yes, today particularly because, you know, our politics is so polarised. Um, 
you just mentioned Australia, but America, of course, has, has been through very polarizing elections. We've just seen in Brazil, very narrow uh, runoff. And this is repeated all, all over the world. And of course, it, it has divided us along ideological lines. I mean, broadly speaking, people on the left have been more willing to um, accept the dictates of public health experts and you know quarantine and, and social distance and all that. Whereas people who more on the right or more of a libertarian tendency, of course, have, have resisted a lot of these things and, and have prioritized their, their personal liberty over um, your more community values. And I think this polarization runs right through the arguments over, you know, what sort of memorial would be, do we want a memorial, what sort of memorial would be appropriate? I mean, at the moment in, in, in the UK, we have um, uh, a committee that's been set up to try and um, find some sort of consensus around what an appropriate memorial would be. We do already have two memorials that are, that have sprung up. One is this extraordinary sort of work of guerrilla art, an unofficial memorial um, on Albert Embankment, which uh, comprises something like 180,000 hearts with the names of mm. each of the dead in them. That was started by a group, uh, an activist group called COVID-19 Brief Families for Justice. Uh, but not far from that wall in uh, St. Paul's Cathedral in Westminster, we have a very different kind of memorial. Um, it's just uh, an online register uh, where people can quietly record uh, their lost ones. And St. Paul's Cathedral is in the process of building a, a new portico uh, where people could come and you know, write in a real book and, and quietly contemplate. Uh, and that, that, that has tried very hard to separate the politics, take the politics out of memorial to, to make it more inclusive. Um, but there's always these problems, you know, how do you make a memorial inclusive if it's in a Christian building like St. Paul's Cathedral, mm. when, you know, you also have many Muslims who died, uh, Jews, Hindu Sikhs. It's not easy to build consensus around an event that has divided people along political and religious lines. And that really is the challenge we face today. On Sunday Extra, we're speaking with Mark Honigsbaum, medical historian and the author of an essay titled Why We Don't Remember Pandemics. Mark, there was something interesting you said there about the sort of impromptu memorial that popped up in England. And, and in America, the first permanent memorial for COVID-19 victims sort of happened in a similar way with the relative mm. of one person who died starting a sort of stone memorial and that then sort of growing organically. And that made me wonder whether perhaps the way around the sort of planning challenge of how to deal with all those issues you've just outlined is in fact to encourage sort of spontaneous community expressions of grief and for those then to become the memorials that the wider community uh, focuses on. Well, I mean, I personally, I would certainly favour that. I think um, there's something particularly moving and powerful about an organic memorial that, you know, is an immediate ex expression of someone's grief or a community's grief. I should say that in the UK, what's interesting about the memorial that sprung up on Albert Embankment 
is that you know this, this this is a good example of how even something that is contemporary that's just happened can disappear from visibility very quickly. So I was struck recently uh, when um, we had these extraordinary scenes after the Queen's death when she was lying in state in Westminster on the opposite side of the river again. Mm. The queue went over Lambeth Bridge and, you know, we had thousands of people walking past, queuing past this memorial on Albert Embankment. But nobody spoke about it. I thought it was a story, you know, everyone was queuing to see the Queen lying in state. But hardly anyone reflected on the fact that there were all these other deaths. And what this shows is that memorials have to be constantly, not constantly in the news so much, but to remember requires work. Uh, It requires us to constantly kind of reflect and Mm. uh, you know, sort of think about what this means to our culture. So if you think about the royalty, I mean, they have hundreds, thousands of years of traditions and rituals to draw upon. Um, the same thing is true with, you know, the ceremony that takes place every year for the Cenotaph, for remembering the dead of World War I, Armistice Day here. You also have a similar thing in Australia on Anzac Day. These are rituals um, and repertoires that are long established. Um, and so that, for that reason, they're, they're very much embedded in our culture and our imagination. Um, but we haven't done that with pandemics. You know, they're not very well mediated in our culture. And therefore, when we have a pandemic, we don't have this store of symbols and rituals that we can just grab and say, OK, this is how we're going to apply this to you know the current experience we're living through. And it kind of goes back to your question of, you know, in order to do that properly, we need, usually what happens is we go back and look at previous pandemics. So this is happening to a certain extent. You know, artists have started to create sculptures or or paintings, and and these are being collected by museums. So uh, I recently visited uh, the Science Museum in London, where they now have started installing works of art, commemorating people who were on frontline health workers, or the sort of signage that was used um, by Boris Johnson and you know our, our chief medical officer at the Lecton and Downing Street when they were telling people to stay mm. home and protect the NHS. So we have all these artifacts, and uh, I think you know one way that uh, we will remember and be able to go back and reflect and educate people about this is through uh, the collections of museums who are thinking very hard about this and what to collect and how to record this uh, experience and preserve it for future generations. Yes, I suppose they're very much focused on that task of of mediating the events and representing Mm. them to a public. Uh, Mark, in terms of the exceptions to the the rule that you've described of pandemics sort of not lodging in Mm. the collective memory, you, you write that there are a few notable exceptions. Well, were you able to discern lessons for what might work in terms of memorialising a pandemic well from those exceptions? So the best recent example, well, recent I say, you know, in the, in the 20th century would have been uh, HIV AIDS uh, in the 1980s and 1990s. Mm. So, um, you know, th- this is an example of a pandemic that, you know, did very much enter the public consciousness at the time because it was so politicized. Um, you know, because at the beginning of that pandemic, uh, it was no, you know, it was labeled the gay plague. Uh, it was very much associated with uh, men who have sex with men, 
also other marginal groups such as uh, intravenous drug users, uh, you know, Haitians. It was very much associated with Haiti in the beginning. Uh, and this made it very political. So um, in San Francisco, AIDS activists got together. They started to sort of uh, create these quilts, uh, these these mm. panels recording the loss of you know um, partners, and all these quilts came together in the AIDS memorial quilt, uh, and you know that resulted in uh, one of the weightiest memorials to any pandemic in history. The AIDS quilt had fifty thousand panels and I think weighed approximately fifty four tons, uh, and of mm. course it was laid out on uh, the mall in in Washington D.C. So that was a very powerful uh, and striking visual symbol, but it was motivated really by, um, you know, political protest uh, and the feelings of stigma and marginalization and, you know, the painful, uh, and very sort of visceral uh, uh, images we, we had of, of people dying of AIDS and all these opportunistic infections. Mark Honigsbaum, absolutely fascinating thoughts about both the cultural and perhaps the, the policy and practical significance of memorialisation. Thank you so much for um, mediating these issues in the, uh, in the collective memory of the Radio National audience on Sunday Extra today. Thank you, Julian. Very interesting to talk to you. And that's Mark Honingsbaum, a medical historian, author of The Pandemic Century, 100 Years of Panic, Hysteria and Hubris. And Mark's actually started a new project devoted to this idea of memorialising pandemics. You can check it out at the website rememberingpandemics.com. Listen to more great stories that take you beyond the headlines. Ask your smart speaker to play ABC RN.